binarical, uh, as socialist. Uh, and Eisenhower's program of the 1950s as communist in the same way. Obama's program today. <laughs> Sorry. Now, this is a new edition of, of, of the book. Um, the first edition came out in 2004. About 30% of the material is new. When I wrote the book in 2003-2004, uh, it began as a study of the deeper historical and cultural roots uh, of the American response to 9-11. Uh, why the Bush administration acted in the way that it did, uh, and why it was able to garner support not only of its own core supporters, but of wider groups of Americans, including for a while men within the Democratic Party. As I researched it, however, I found myself essentially going further and further back in American history, deeper into American culture, and examining features which, in certain respects, or certain features, uh, go back not just to the foundation of the American Republic and beyond, but to the foundation of the English colonies in North America and beyond. In other words, you come back to the Protestant England in the 16th century. The new edition of the book retains all that, but um, looks at the further radicalization of the Republican Party <laughs> since then, uh, and increases what was already there in the uh, original edition, takes it further, uh, a look at the historic decline of the white middle classes, large sections <coughs> of the middle classes in recent decades. And of course, when we talk about middle classes in America, in American terms, this includes something for which we no longer have a politically correct term, I'm afraid. Um, our ancestors would have called it the respectable working classes. Uh, in America, of course, that has often been read as essentially meaning the white working classes. But anyway, I mean, it includes what in the past we have called working classes in Europe, as well as the middle classes. Um, and as I argue in the book, both because of the deep roots of these phenomena in cultural traits in American history, and because of what unfortunately looks like the inexorable economic decline of large sections of middle classes, uh, I believe that these tendencies will continue in the Republican Party, irrespective of who wins in November. This book is not a bet on one side or the other. Then of course, I will take that for, for a heavy fee. Now, in the book, uh, so, so the, the first edition of the book was about foreign and domestic policy with a slightly greater weight towards foreign. The second edition is the same with a slightly greater weight towards domestic. In both, I have talked about what I call the two faces of American nationalism. Um, nationalism being integrally related uh, to American political culture in general. And I call this, not an original phrase of mine, the American nationalist thesis and the American nationalist antithesis. And I make a comparison. I think that the Indians have noticed it. They went down questionably in France not quite at all in America, but I make a, 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 a comparison here um, between America in this regard and France and India. 
in that, in France since the revolution, in India since independence, there has been what might be called uh, an official nationalist discourse and love, which has stressed the nations concerned as the carriers of and embodiments of and supreme exemplars in at least their parts of the world of universal values. In other words, universal values of democracy, republicanism, uh, certain forms of cultural pluralism as embodied in French and Indian institutions. Uh, this is American civic nationalism rooted uh, in what has been called the American creed, uh, a phrase originally coined by G.K. Chesterton, an Englishman but later taken up by many Americans. The American creed meaning faith in America's democratic judicial institutions, but also implying um, that in America, this faith, this civic nationalist creed, has an almost religious force. And Richard Hofstadter, famous American historian of the 1960s, uh, wrote that uh, it has been our fate as a nation not to have ideologies, but to be one. In other words, to a greater extent than almost anywhere else in the world, America has seen itself as embodying a certain set of political ideas. And what is, of course, particularly striking again is that these are not just general ideas, we all hope believe in democracy, freedom, the rule of law, but they are very, very strictly embodied in particular written documents and institutions in the US Constitution. Um, so it's particularly <coughs> concrete in the United States. And the belief has been in America, officially, if you will, mainstream American culture, that you become an American by believing in and owing allegiance to these institutions, this official community. Uh, and indeed, um, the term American nationalism, there was a lot of stake for, for calling the book American nationalism. There's a very widespread response, well, there's no such thing. We're not nationalists. I would ask, we'll compare America to other countries, you know, similar traits, and we'll ask, well, what are you now? And the response would be, of course, we're patriots. You know the joke. Curious thing is that from the 1890s to about the 1950s, uh, not merely was the term American nationalism very widely used within America, but it was used in a positive sense. This business of American nationalism, you know, nationalism having majority connotations was not present. And that was because progressives in the United States, and quasi-progressives, if you will, <coughs> Roosevelt, promoted this idea of a civic American nationalism based on the American creed precisely as a way of integrating and assimilating these enormous <coughs> waves of immigrants from other cultures who came in in the later 19th century. So this form of American nationalism was seen as positive. Now, the comparison with France and India is that at the same time in all three countries, more formally and explicitly in France and India, in a looser sense in the United States, 
there has always been a different view, either explicitly in contradiction to the first uh, or implicitly, which says that it isn't enough to believe in or owe allegiance to institutions. To be a true Frenchman, stroke Indian, stroke American, you also have to possess a particular kind of culture. Um, initially, closely related to ethnicity, uh, but with time, somewhat divorced from ethnicity, uh, but um, always related to culture, very often to religion, and always, of course, closely related, not just to what you are, but equally importantly to what you are not. Um, so you see since the French Revolution, this uh, trend, which, which of course, it, it doesn't stay the same, it develops over time, it, it finds its embodiment in different parties and movements and different sets of enemies at different times. Um, but which says, to be a Frenchman, you have to be initially, of course, a Catholic, that was the old line. And then that changes, then Christian. Today, it seems that to be a Frenchman, basically, you have to be not a Muslim. Um, for this, this side of politics. Uh, in India, of course, this uh, sentiment is embodied in the BJP and more extreme groups associated with it, or even further to the right, the belief that to be a true Indian, to be, to be a reliable Indian, in other words, the person who will stick by the country when things go wrong uh, and who will not betray the country from within, uh, you have to get Hindu. Uh, or at the very least, you have to be not a Muslim. <laughs> now, in, in the United States, there is a difference, um, which was remarked uh, by Gunamayadal in the 1940s, perhaps best analysed of all by a, a great, I'm sorry to say, beyond narrow circles of academia, almost forgotten American thinker, Lewis Hartz, who wrote the liberal tradition in America in the 1950s. And what these writers uh, have brought out is that there is, in the past there was a great difference in America, between America and other countries in the world, which is that this emphasis that to be a true American you had to be a particular kind of person, which meant always, of course, white. Um, but originally, other, and, and to a degree still, other things in terms of culture as well, that this was never opposed to democracy, formally opposed to democracy. Mayadal noted in his travels in the American South in the 1940s how people who expressed the most savage opinions about blacks and a categorical determination to deny blacks all the rights of American citizens were nonetheless, it seemed, sincerely convinced that they themselves were true, good American Democrats who believed in American institutions and American values. They just believed that only certain kinds of people were both capable of operating within these institutions and would not use these institutions to destroy white America from within. Um, this is a discourse which emerged very much in some of the, uh, the arguments in America after 9-11, uh, when the Bush administration moved to suspend uh, certain civil rights as far as perceived domestic as well as international uh, uh, enemies 
notion that summed up in the phrase, no, no freedom for the enemies of freedom. Uh, or the United States Constitution is not a suicide pact. In other words, we know how to exercise these rights, therefore only we deserve these rights. Um, fascinating debates in the 19th century uh, between um, people, I suppose, with called East Coast liberals and people on the frontier. Uh, in this regard, when it came to the treatment of the relations with the Native Americans, people you know, in the East Coast saying, "Look, you know, we have signed treaties with these people. Um, you know, some of them have become our allies. Uh, our agreements with them now incorporated into American law. Therefore, we must stick to our agreements and treat them as we would Americans." And the response from the frontier came back then. You can say this you know, from New York or Boston. But if we do this, they, will, they have no understanding of our laws, they hate us, they will use this. Any, any rights and freedoms we give them, they will use to destroy us. Therefore, they must be either killed or crushed so utterly that they can pose no further conceivable threat. I, I said that um, in the past uh, there was a difference here between the United States and um, Europe, uh, for example, and, and India, uh, in that these culturally nationalist tendencies or racially nationalist tendencies elsewhere in the world, uh, in the past, were always also explicitly authoritarian and anti-democratic. Um, in, in France, believe in the restoration of the monarchy or in the creation of some new kind of authoritarian military state, Hindu nationalism in India in the past was also very much associated with ideas of leader worship and authoritarianism. That seems now to have changed elsewhere as well if you look at discourses in Europe. It's all explicitly about defending democracy, but defending democracy against alleged domestic fifth columns of immigrants, of Muslims, of others who supposedly do you know, inherently hate democracy and will use democratic rights to destroy democracy from within. But Le Pen, Wilders, all the others, they would say that they're not against democracy, but ending democracy. Something that their ancestors would not have said. U.S. white populations. 
And of course, this is a, a radically changing group over time. Uh, faced with a combination of immigration by different peoples uh, and economic and social change. And when I say that this perceived core uh, is, um, has changed greatly over time, uh, this is exemplified perhaps best of all by the Irish. Uh, some of you may know the savage phrase used by many old Protestant Wasp Americans and Scots-Irish husbandmen too, people of lost origin, uh, when masses of Gaelic Catholic peasants started arriving uh, in the middle 19th century. You know what they were called? White niggers. So that was the feeling about Catholic Irish then. But of course, 100 years later, the Irish had moved you know, very much in their own perception and aspect of the else into the core white population. And of course, they've done so by a mixture of assimilating to American values, but also, of course, stressing their difference from later immigrants, and above all, of course, from people of different race. There's a very good book by Noel Ignatio called When the Irish Became White. Looking at how the Irish stressed their whiteness precisely so as to try to make their way into that core population and distinguish themselves from the outsider. This is the first set of origins. The second, of course, is the specific fear of blacks in the white south and the desire to keep them in either open, categorical, or somewhat vague <coughs> forms of subjugation. Uh, and of course, in recent decades, uh, modified forms of this fear have also spread to large parts of the white north, with uh, the busing issue in the 1960s providing an early catalyst for spread of these attitudes. Um, and once again, historically, though it's not an issue today, um, this was linked uh, historically uh, to a fear on the frontier of Native Americans, as they were And it's very interesting that if you see some of the um, sort of popular chauvinist uh, publications um, in America in the later 19th century, just how much the Indians were still also being used as hate figures among the blacks uh, as part of this business of bringing together white America. And finally, the third um, historical element are the fears and anxieties American conservative religion uh, in the face of cultural change. Uh, a phenomenon which one can trace back to the 18th century um, and uh, which is closely associated um, in uh, America since then uh, with a distrust of sections of the American elites. One argument about the American Revolution was that it was inspired, at least in part, principally in part, by a fundamentalist Protestant, sectarian Protestant, dislike and fear uh, of the Episcopalian Anglican establishment, viewed, of course, by the fundamentalists as crypto-Catholics, and, and, of course, upper class compared to what Thomas Jefferson, the honest <coughs> These three sets of anxieties obviously overlap to a considerable extent historically, but they're not, of course, identical. Um, but people are more influenced by some, not influenced at all by others, and so on. 
they develop organically over time. Um, now, today, uh, of course, you see in, in the phenomenon of the cheap arches and its support, several of these anxieties once again coming together, albeit in, in vague ways. <coughs> and what I think the cheap parties, as their antecedents reflect, is that sections, very large sections of the white middle classes, have a sense of themselves as what Walter Russell Mead, one of the most acute American economists these conferences, describes as a sense of themselves as a folk. And when Walter uses this phrase, it comes reasonably close, fairly close, to folk in the German sense of folk, that's to say a people or the people. And Russell Mead's argument is that in a, in a loose sense, a looser sense than before, there are a set of cultural values which these sections of American society expect you to have or adopt if you are to be fully accepted as middle class, and therefore in a certain sense fully accepted as American. What Walter brings out, once again, is that this has changed directly over time. Uh, Especially perhaps when it comes to colour. Obviously, American attitudes to colour have changed greatly, or Obama would not be president of the United States today. <laughs> On the other hand, I myself was not surprised in that, you know, within a quick period of time, the black would be president of the United States. What really surprised me was that the first black president of the United States was not a retired military veteran. Now, that was partly because, of course, Colin Powell could have had the Republican or the Democratic nomination for the asking. But it was also because it is above all military service, more than anything else, which has allowed blacks and some others to gain a measure of acceptance by the conservative white middle classes. In other words, it's no longer about color to the same extent as before, or to the same extent color as there is. But by God, it is still about culture. And of course, part of the culture of the white middle classes, along with, still to a degree, um, a belief in God, a belief in work, is patriotism, so military service. And the Irish, of course, use prominence in war as perhaps their greatest argument for good Americans. Um, so, what I say in the book has happened. Transformation of America from what I and others have called a heaven folk democracy, a master race democracy. Uh, admittedly, with the definition of exactly what the master race was changing over time. Uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, excluded the Swedes and most of the Germans as insufficiently white. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, things have changed from that. But a move from heaven folk democracy to what I call civilizational empire. And I make parallels between America in this regard 
and the Roman Chinese empires in the past. Great assimilating empires who would bring in people of um, totally different ethnic origins and turn them into Romans and Chinese, and only, of course, if they ceased to be barbarians and adopted imperial culture and worship of the imperial gods. I see that still very much present in the United States. Um, and here, um, of course, with regard to Obama, I naturally, his color has awakened many of the old, atomistic, unchanging white American fears. Uh, but these cannot be publicly expressed to a great extent, uh, and even perhaps in many people cannot be admitted fully even to themselves. So what it now comes up as <coughs> is doubts about his culture. Is he a Christian or is he a Muslim? Is he a believer or is he an atheist? And so forth and so on. And from that point of view, in the past, and still to a considerable degree, very considerable today, many parts of the United States, one of these American values, middle class values, <coughs> which it was necessary to espouse if you're going to be accepted, was religious faith and religious practice. And in certain ways, it must be said, um, this uh, has actually become more so uh, in America uh, in recent cases in the past. Uh, I don't really have time to go into this. It's a complicated thing. But it's been rather widely remarked that most probably neither Abraham Lincoln nor Thomas Jefferson could be elected president <coughs> of the United States today, given their open religious agnosticism, at least pluralism. Uh, whereas, you know, Obama has, and like every president before him, however, totally unconvincingly in recent cases I had to pretend again and again that not all that all sincerely practice their religious faith in terms of church and be seen to do so. Um, now of course well, varying degrees of religious faith are obviously different degrees of religious faith in the United States. But certainly if you look at certain areas of the South and certainly if you look at core groups of support of the Republican Party today, uh, you can trace certain continuous historical lineages going back, as I've said, once again, not, not just to the 18th or 17th century, but even to the 16th century. And among them are certain forms of class resentment and, of course, the association of certain forms of Protestant religion with certain forms of nationalism, proto-nationalism, certainly at least a strong belief that God's new Israel, for the phrase of God, England in the past, Scotland, Holland, and always the United States, uh, is surrounded by a, a variety of different kinds of enemies and to destroy it. We represent God and Christian civilization against this. In England and Scotland, the alien enemy uh, was the Irish, the Irish Catholics. Um, the Scots-Irish, Alston, uh, who took so much of this tradition over to America, transferred the, the attitudes and indeed the language straight from the Gaelic-Irish to the Red Indians on the frontier, the language of the Amalekites, the Philistines, and we represent the Protestant God of War. 
from the old testament who is actually the feet of exterminating these people. And in large parts of the United States, these forms of religion have had a tremendously shaping effect on society. From the very beginning, I'm going to this, uh, if you look at the history of the American frontier, the frontier to a considerable extent was civilized by religion, by churches, rather than as elsewhere in Canada, for example, by the state. Um, and religion has always played a very important part in American politics. It appeared to go away for about 40 years uh, in the mid 20th century. Uh, but thereafter, it returned with a vengeance from the 1960s in reaction to the growth of the, the counterculture and the sexual revolution. And since the 1960s, one has seen all the three strands of this tradition in the United States that I have described coming together. Uh, there is the religious reaction against forms of cultural change uh, which were regarded as diabolical. Uh, and, and by the way, I mean, from this point of view, I think it is worth remembering uh, that, you know, American society today is described as particularly polarized. It, it seems to, to me highly unlikely that either Eisenhower uh, or uh, Franklin Roosevelt, for their immense popularity, uh, could have been elected from a party uh, associated with gay marriage and abortion. Of course, one of the reasons why conservative religion in America appeared to go away was these were not issues in those days. But from the 1960s, they are. So there is the religious and cultural anxiety. There is racial anxiety, um, initially due to civil rights, and then, as I've said, extending to large parts of the white north, and now focused uh, in part on Obama. Uh, after a period of slow decline, it 
Uh, now, this was masked for a long time by the entry of women into the workforce, <coughs> by people having smaller numbers of children, and then by the credit boom. But in recent years, the mask has dropped and is a very widespread understanding uh, that uh, the American dream is in fact no longer working um, and that the American way of life is under threat. Uh, so also fueling all of this, you have um, this strong sense of middle class embattlement and decline. Uh, and what of course is so worrying about this is that, as has been widely remarked, some of you may have seen Ed Luce's column in the Financial Times last week. Um, even when the economy as a whole is growing, it is not benefiting the mass of the population in the same way as in the past. And a very frightening statistic in recent years is that people, uh, apart from more and more of the permanent unemployed, uh, people who lose their jobs and get new ones are, on average, likely to get ones which are strikingly worse paid than the ones they had before, and, and also with far fewer or no benefits, which of course is critical the United States. Now, a matter of great puzzlement to many liberals on the left is the fact that as far as large parts of the white middle classes are embracing what I've said, working classes, working so, um, that their reaction uh, has been guided, above all, not by, although the anxiety, the fear, the resentment may come originally, largely, from economic factors, the response has not been in terms of economic protest or adopting rational, quote-unquote, uh, economic responses or supporting candidates with these responses, uh, but it has been expressed above all in terms of cultural resistance directed, of course, above all at the Liberals who supposedly dominate the Democratic Party. Now, if you take if you take the American middle classes as working classes in the UK, European working classes in the UK, perhaps a large part of the American liberal analysis does, and of course the European analysis automatically does, and this doesn't indeed seem by historical standards. If you take them at their own self-description as middle class, and then think of them as lower middle class, then of course this doesn't look nearly so well in, in historical terms or by comparison with Europe. Because of course, if you look at lower middle class politics in Europe, of course, in the later 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, and perhaps once again today, when the classes out you see that voting according to culture and cultural community always was the dominant theme. Uh, because if, on the one hand, the learned classes, as in America, uh, possess deep resentments of the elites, they are also obsessed, of course, by the fear of sinking into the proletariat. And in America, the proletariat is seen, and since they are part of the proletariat, uh, is seen not as the proletariat, but as a lumpen proletariat made up chiefly of people of different race. 
So from that point of view, the behavior of the white middle, the large parts of the white middle classes does seem to be in historical terms be fairly The other thing, of course, is that again, um, much of the left liberal analysis of the power of religion in America has been, you know, that religion doesn't really exist in its own right, it's a proxy for other things. And in the crudest version, um, that conservative religious beliefs in America essentially is ignorant hicks uh, being manipulated by good capitalism. And I have to say, as a, as a historian and a kind of anthropologist, I, I see things very differently. Um, I don't wish to say anything about the truth or otherwise of religion. Um, we all know that in a hundred years. Uh, <laughs> um, what I think is clear um, is that if religion is a proxy, it's a proxy for so many other things that it could be called a proxy for life itself, uh, or a proxy for community. That's as I said, in many parts of the world, and certainly in many parts of the United States, religious faith is so bound up with people's idea of what is the good life and the good society so bound up with cultural traditions, uh, so bound up with sense of community, and of course, so bound up with whatever community actually exists, given the decay of other forms of community organizations, that it is in fact inextricably bound up with local politics, local society. Um, and um, these forms of religious faith uh, have clearly contributed well, and, and the, the growing distinctions since the 1960s between them uh, and the beliefs of other parts of the population have contributed enormously to the polarization of American society. Um, this was summed up very well by a former landlady of mine in Washington, um, a fundamentalist, a woman and Christian, uh, who, who said to me one time, you know, I, I, she was a sweet woman, had been like, I, I, I don't want to offend you, but, but you know, if somebody doesn't believe in God, I just can't trust them in any other way. And you know, if you really believe that, and you believe that somebody who doesn't believe in God, or who promotes certain kinds of satanic behavior, <laughs> well, I mean, the idea of reaching a rational compromise with them over tax reform or something is <laughs> possible. Um, so one should never, never underestimate uh, the power of conservative religion in America as a driver of polarization, particularly, of course, given since the 1960s, given these very concrete, specific issues that have become less and less possible to blur the gaps. Um, so that's Bush, who was probably closer to 
this one than any other American president. One in 2000 as an apparent centrist, and one in 2004 in the very special circumstances of post-9-11. On the other hand, uh, if you look at the waves of radical conservatism since the 1970s, it was very evident. Uh, is that each wave, the English has never actually conquered the whole party, as it recedes, has left the party several notches further to the right. I mean, you can just trace that through the development of the party. The other thing, uh, which has been so evident, once again over this past year as well, uh, is the way in which the composition of the Republican Party in the Senate and House uh, has been changed as a result of these radical conservative revolts at the local level, uh, which have um, just included knocking out some of the most distinguished figures of moderate Republicans, such as Richard Luger. Uh, and of course, as you all know, the particular power uh, of Congress within the United States Constitution and the United States power system. Um, the particular autonomy or independence of senators, uh, and congressmen to a lesser extent as well, vis-a-vis their party machines, uh, means that even if a minority or a minority in both houses, or a majority of a majority in one house, can't actually drive their own agenda in terms of policy, what they can do as we've seen so much over the past four years, is block in the houses And to finish on what I hope is not an apocalyptic note, there's a very good book by Paul Boyer about, um, actually, not just fundamentalist religion, but apocalyptic religion in America and its effects on politics. He he says in the preface that, um, having studied this tendency for many years, uh, he thought he thought he should uh, put his thoughts down on paper while he was still comparatively sound in mind. <laughs> um, so forgive me if, if apocalyptic tendency has gained too much of a grip on that. But to return to the American creed and American civic nationalism, the fanatical faith of the two parties in the letter of the American Constitution the Constitutional Declaration of Independence, the site of them waving it over their heads like rounds of red guards at meetings, has been greeted by a mixture of mockery and disbelief in in many circles. And of course, I mean, it is due principally uh, to two One is the way in which this faith has been reinstated in all of And of course, so familiar from radical conservative movements, uh, the belief in the need to go back to a golden age of the past. Um, the 1950s essentially, but for these people, embodied not just in, in an age or an idea, but in actual documents. Uh, but um, I fear, and of course, this is what's reflecting all the wider fears that I've described. 
But I'm afraid that what we may also be seeing is something that we've seen a couple of times <coughs> We may which is to say that we may be seeing the United States Constitution uh, becoming a racial battle, as it was before the Civil War, as, as it was once again in the 1950s and early 60s, where defenders of states' rights used a particular interpretation of the Constitution, and also legitimate one in itself, I have to say, um, but basically to maintain the subjection of blackness. Um, today, problem uh, about the existing constitution uh, is not only the rules of the Senate, um, in particular, uh, which has been observed to make effective government extremely difficult, even when the president has a democratic mandate. The problem is also, of course, the composition of the U.S. Senate. The fact that you have, not that there are a couple of very small liberal states as well, in Paris, <coughs> But above all, uh, you have a bunch of principally white conservative states with very small populations. We elect two senators, Wyoming, must have less than 600,000 people, Montana, 800,000 or so, South Dakota, and so on. Two senators, California, almost 40 million people, largely Latino, two senators, and so on. Um, and therefore, a desire to stick at costs to the, the, the letter of the US Constitution, a categorical rejection of any change to the US Constitution. And because in a curious um, fusing of a civically nationalist creed and an explicitly religious creed, because many of the supporters of the Tea Party who actually believe that in a sort of vapor formulation, the US Constitution is an expression of natural law. Harder version of that is that it's actually the word of God, one. To his own great surprise, it must be said to Thomas Jefferson. I don't know where they are today, but, but well, anyway, wherever they are, they're surprised. <laughs> but anyway, my fears are correct, and I very much hope that they, are, they will not be. Uh, you could have a situation in which this absolutist sticking to the Constitution becomes more and more openly uh, a sticking to white conservative power, absolute power, but white conservative power in critical aspects of the American system in a country which, after all, by the middle of the century, seems to be a profoundly worrying picture for the future, particularly if large parts uh, of the white population are coming further and further under economic pressure uh, as a result both of inexorable global tendencies uh, but also the inability of the American system itself to do anything to protect uh, I hope this will not be the case.
um, it, it strikes me as um, unusual that, uh, that I'm sharing this event tonight because many of the comments and peculiarities that you pointed to seem
as we go along as, as it might be relevant. So I know you've been very patient, audience. So um, I think we'll throw it open to any questions and maybe take a few at a time and then we can then have you answer them as a group. So we'll start with the lower floor and I'll move up to the upper uh, floor. So um, the front row and over there and Um, can I just ask, do you think the Democratic Party, either consciously or subconsciously, is also pandering to the fears of your declining white middle class? I mean, like, if you pick up some of Obama's campaign themes in the battleground states, they seem to me to be addressing a lot of the things that you've just discussed. intellectual culture uh, on the right in the US or maybe the lack of it. Um, I remember in um, uh, George H. Nash's uh, magisterial book, The Conservative Intellectual Movement from Ivory Brother Misery Five, he goes through Milton Friedman, Buckley, Owen Crystal, Russell Kirk, T.S. Eliot, uh, I think Mary Rothbard, uh, Frank Mayer, um, a whole load of, I think, rather extraordinary a group of people and intellectuals, um, even if you disagree with them. They seem to, they obviously had this room by themselves, and they, they weren't, there was the conservative tradition, rather conservative, conservatisms. Um, but it seems to them the Republican Party, or at least on the right, from my perspective, you don't really seem to have that um, uh, uh, respect for maybe, there's, there seems to be no real debate anymore, or no sort of real sort of genuine intellectual culture. I mean, National Review, you may have disagreed with it, but it, at least it had some, it was like a forum for ideas. And is, is there um, that popular Republican kind of intellectual culture now? Can you speak to such a thing? Or ideas? Or? Thank you. Um, it seems to me that one of the most predominant strands in American uh, in the election rhetoric at the moment is distinctly anti globalist whether it's uh, Romney, Washington. Uh, label China, currency manipulator, whether it's the Obama campaign uh, attacking Romney for outsourcing jobs to, uh, to Asia. Um, to what extent can we dismiss this as just election rhetoric, or are we really witnessing in terms of a more protectionist and Atlantis type of political economy? Well, I mean, when it comes to the, the Democrats pandering to these fears, I, mean, I, I wouldn't use that, that phrase. Um, I wouldn't use it I mean, that much better for any Republican who takes these fears, these economic fears, seriously. Because the fact is, I've indicated, uh, that a very large part of the American population is suffering very badly. Um, and now, the, and the tendencies that one sees have been growing uh, and nevertheless, you know, continue, it's not easy to see how they can be brought to an end. And from that point of view, of course, it may be announced uh, that either in the end, government's ability to do anything about it is actually limited, given the global factors at work. Or, as your question might suggest, uh, what they try to do about it might be counterproductive or even disastrous. Um, certainly, I would see, given you know, what is happening, to so many Americans. Uh, 
um, the pressures for greater protectionism uh, for trying to hit back at what's seen as unfair competition uh, are bound to continue and even to grow. And the question is, of course, whether the power of elites with a, not just actual state, but with a very strong perceived stake in globalization will be sufficient to counteract that. I mean, the answer is, I suppose, it very much depends on what happens to the economy as a whole. I mean, if we see a, uh, another deeper depression, uh, then these tendencies may become irresistible. Uh, they will buy, of course, interestingly, I think, when it comes to economic policy, they will, they will be brought to bear on both parties. Uh, there is likely, in the end, to come from the Democrats as from the Republicans. And they will involve something more like a, a sort of common upsurge of parts of the base against the existing elites. Um, so I don't think this is a case of countering exactly. It's a case of you know, both political parties responding to <coughs> what are very real problems. And one thing I would say is that um, I think there can be really legitimate disagreements, different ideas uh, about um, what, how the United States should respond, how any of us should respond. Uh, I, I don't think, however, that these problems are going to be solved simply by waving the Constitution in the air um, and demanding more and more tax cuts. Uh, yes, tax cuts, perhaps, but there are a lot of other things that need to be done. The, um, yes, I mean, this is a, a very disturbing thing that I find in the Republican Party. Uh, and in institutions like the Heritage and the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, you know, as has been remarked by a number of British conservatives, the degree of ideological conformism within these institutions is now, I mean, pretty terrifying. And if you look at the you know, people who've been expelled from, from dissent, I mean, this includes David Frank, for example, <laughs> Seen as a beer concert. It includes my uh, former co author, very much from Eisenhower, conservative, John Halsford, and so on. People in the past have been absolutely a part of the legitimate mainstream, but no longer tolerated. And you see, I mean, in domestic policy, in groups, in foreign policy, people like And it burns, um, who's, who's a, a former State Department staffer, who was on the side, uh, becoming very alienated by precisely this, you know, a crude and simplistic approach. Um, there are, of course, still certain um, other tendencies within the party. It's not completely as that tradition is not wholly dead. What I think is striking, if you look at the, the wider world of people who in the past would certainly have seen themselves as culturally uh, different ideas, sort of radical centrist ideas, if you will, um, now uh, are coming not from within the Republican Party, uh, but from within the US military. Um, and I would urge you from that point of view to read 
this Mr. Y essay of last year, um, written by two uh, then serving US military uh, officers, uh, encouraged to produce this by Admiral Mullen, the chief of staff, um, on a new strategic narrative in the United States. Uh, these people were explicitly political. Probably the natural Republicans in the past. And some of the things they're saying about, yeah, unfortunately, and to the reality of climate change, the need for energy conservation, and so forth, the need for social solidarity. Very much realize but of course, absolutely unbelievable for the Republican Party of today. So, um, yes, that's a good point. Oh, sorry to come back to your point. Don't forgive me, but I sneeze again. <laughs> um, I think Reagan did play an important role. Uh, but if you look at a variety of things that I've described, um, Reagan, of course, like so many of these sort of new Republicans in the 1980s, was an ex Democrat. Um, he was responding to, to certain tendencies in the old democratic base, which had been apparent from the 1960s. Um, uh, coded, not always explicit, but coded responses to civil, civil rights, black rights, um, deep hostility to the counterculture, uh, and of course a deep desire, conscious or unconscious, to put back together America's civic religion and faith in the US and America's mission, which had been so badly dented uh, by Vietnam. There's a fantastic phrase by Gary Wills about Reagan, which actually brings out the difference between Reagan and T-Bartism. Reagan, the demagogue has rather soothing. <coughs> Really, really horrible issues, policy, 
um, to stir the, the, this section of the um, And Eisenhower also said, America needs a national religion. I don't care what it is. <laughs> in other words, Eisenhower too recognized the importance of religion in public life in American culture, etc. So, but the difference was that as far as Eisenhower was concerned, the In the, the US Constitution and, and treating it as a magistrate-style document. Um, from an Irish perspective, you know, we've seen 30 odd amendments to the Irish Constitution in 70 years. Is there any international parallel for treating a 200 year old document with the reverence that it seems to get in the US? Um, 
earned natural law in the world, you know, in history. Um, curious, I mean, and, and a fascinating question of whether a document has ever been, a secular, ostensibly secular constitutional document, has ever been imbued with this degree of faith. The answer is, I, I don't think so. I can't think of one. And of course, if you think more widely about systems, then that's different. Um, clearly, the Romans had a, a, a quasi-religious belief in Romanitae, Institutions and the values of Rome, summed up after the worship of the goddess Rome, the Roman system. <coughs> um, I mean, in some ways, it seems that the, and here perhaps you could say that there are certain analogies to um, conservative movements elsewhere in the past, um, that rather than documents, um, this faith in a Constitution Supreme Court is what in other places and other times you know, would be called faith in throne and altar. Um, you know, that's to say a, a combination of national institutions embodying for its adherence, adherence to everything that was good about the country and so uh, I can't think of the Obsessed 
with uh, with uh, these uh, with these areas in the sense that is that if they were to be successful, then they've got to gain for the elusive middle ground those hard to define. which for a long time was the kind of standard of Republicans that, you know, if the wealthy became even wealthier, that was going to help everybody. Uh, that seems to be shifting towards kind of Ayn Randian extremist view whereby large segments of the public are, are seen as, as basically a drain on the good guys or the entrepreneurs and so on. I mean, Rodney said this not intentionally publicly, but he didn't find down from this. A number of other Republicans, you know, openly endorsed this view. Do you see this as a reflection of a kind of fear that the middle classes will not be able to pay their way and, and, uh, and are basically a, you know, a fear factor to the elite? Um, yeah. The previous questions were about the middle class decline and perceived real American decline. You know, going together in a very dangerous way, yes. I mean, that is historically both a classic and an extremely dangerous combination. And of course the point is that we don't know how things will go, we don't know what will happen in China. Um, I don't see even the relative to China in the United States as wholly unruly. Um, but uh, yes, um, precisely that, you know, classes under tremendous domestic pressure have a way of externalizing. Thing, in competition with each other. So, 
that of course, given the, the, the depth of the free market ideology in America and the way in which this has been deliberately organic tradition is deliberately cultivated by partisan media and so forth, uh, it, it is understandable that the response should be a desire simply to cut the golden block of simplistic abolitionism of government Above all, the 
on television. So donors are a much more important to both parties. Of course, as you would all have noted, Obama's actually beating Romney in terms of getting um, In terms of the, the change of composition of the donors, uh, I mean, what you see, of course, in both parties is a tremendous move away from industrial capital to finance capital. That means in terms of policies. Um, in the Republican Party, uh, well, you could, I suppose, see a parallel, uh, which is to say that the Democrats, at least in the demonology of the Republicans, are unduly influenced by a limited number of big, especially Hollywood donors, with specific cultural agendas, which would not necessarily be those of the Democratic Party as a whole or majority of its donors, but do, it seems, probably have uh, a disproportionate effect on the Democratic leadership. Uh, in the Republicans, it does seem that uh, a number of deeply, deeply committed and rather extreme donors, like the Cox um, and um, uh, Anderson, uh, have had a disproportionate effect as well, uh, simply because they are ideologically committed and they put huge amounts of money behind that ideological commitment. Uh, but overall, um, I mean, the striking thing is that actually both parties are getting money from much the same sources, and therefore, well, hence, you, know, you, you, you have, as I say, Obama in many ways governing like us and our Republican. Right, um, I think we're out of time now, but the good news is that we'll be well before the um, for the next time. So if there's